Yeah, kind of kind of early here for me. I'm I'm getting booted up still a little bit. Um, yeah, that's cool. We can boot up together. I mean, I was just telling them that uh, I have a kind of crazy schedule right now because since I'm not, how should I say, since my um, responsibilities have been quite suddenly alleviated, I get to live in the dream, Justin. I'm basically living the dream. Yeah. So I get to do what's my favorite kind of sleep system, which is what they call free running sleep, which basically just means you go to sleep whenever you're tired and you wake up whenever your body wants to. It's the absolute That's best not- way to to organize sleep for me personally. Um, I love I love when I have the privilege of living this way. Obviously, it's not practical for most people, but um that's what I'm on right now, but it leads to, it leads to crazy kind of outcomes where like one day you might be uh, like I, today I woke up around like 2 PM and uh, I'll be up until like 5 AM tonight. So yeah, it's kind of difficult, but it's, you feel, you feel always like well rested. That sounds uh really responsible of you, Justin. Well, do, yeah. Well, the, the, it, it is responsible because I, are I, you, you know, I'm are you drinking water out of a protein shaker without, uh, is, is that a protein shaker? It's water in a protein shaker cup. Yeah, you know, I, I just uh, I had this uh, opinion of of you maybe being more classy than that, um, but uh, yeah, maybe, well, maybe... Um, don't yeah. I mean, this this lovely classical kind of background that I have um, is just to compensate for my actual uh, slovenliness. Um, it, it has a certain aesthetic. Well, I don't know. I think my aesthetic is. Uh, I mean, I clean up fairly well, like I can be professional and cleaned up and, and I do like kind of high art and stuff like that. And I like well put together, uh, environments and everything like that. And I can do it, but, um, my default average is like pretty normal, I guess. Like I'm not too sloppy or disorganized or dirty, but, um, yeah, I think I'm probably like pretty average. I'm, um, I'm rocking a, a fizzy water today an off brand fizzy water, not in LaCroix. Um, oh yeah, we don't have that here, but everyone talks about it. It's like the thing in Silicon Valley, especially uh, because we're like all too smart to drink corn syrup, um, but we like fizzy things because humans love fizzy things. Yeah. So they invented um, fizzy water with like ghosts of flavor in it. It's like a pineapple died, and its ghost is haunting the water. It's kind of the the flavor. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, I want to try LaCroix, but uh, they don't have it here, so I can't be in the cool club. Oh, I, I'll ship one to you, Justin. <laughs> Thanks, dude. Um, How much can it cost? Like 20 bucks? It's worth <laughs> it for you to do a LaCroix review on, on your stream. Okay, I'll think about that for future content. <laughs> um, so you just said something that I thought was interesting. You said um, Silicon Valley, and then you said we. So for <laughs> people who... That's a nice kind of segue to maybe share with people a little bit about who you are or whatever, because... I mentioned before you joined that you're out in out in the Bay Area, um, but I, you know, I haven't known you that long, and I didn't, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that you necessarily identify as a representative of Silicon Valley. So that's kind of or or a participant in Silicon Valley proper. So maybe you could, by way of clarifying that, you could just um, also for a larger audience, just maybe tell us all a little bit about your your story or how you see yourself in that way. Yeah. I feel a little exasperated listening to that because the truth of the matter is that I'm a big skeptic of Silicon Valley and like a cultural, I feel like a cultural dissident and a contrarian. And there's nothing more Silicon Valley than being a cultural dissident and contrarian and like not identifying with it. Um, So, I mean, I've been 
in the Bay Area for eight years, uh, came up here to do a startup um, and then worked at several other startups. Uh, now I'm sort of in the Bitcoin space and uh, working with a startup there. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I'm definitely Silicon Valley um, and maybe like the ways that Silicon Valley has drifted from like what I expected the culture to be or what it was back when I was getting started. Um, maybe that's um, part of my disidentification with it. Like I feel like there's some more pure version of nerd culture that um, deserves to have a physical manifestation in, in, in the real world. Uh, maybe that's an illusion. I don't know. Um, right. But so when, remind us, when did you first um, go to Silicon Valley or, you know, the Bay Area or whatever, more generally? Like when did when did that moment kind of start for you? Uh, I started living here in, in, in 2010. Um, and so the other thing that might be pertinent to your viewers besides my technical background um like i you know I, i'm i know something about bitcoins and blockchains and, and things like that and cryptography um i care about privacy a lot um i wouldn't call myself a cypherpunk because I, I don't have enough og street cred for that but <laughs> i sort of uh hang out around it um is I, like I, I used to be like sort of still am but very occasionally i, I was a libertarian uh, blogger back in the day. I got linked to by Reason Magazine. Uh, <laughs> Robin Hansen retweeted something I wrote lately. Uh, but I've been, um, I've definitely been uh, dialing that back. Uh, I write a lot less and my quality is higher. And if you go to my blog and read something, you're like, the quality of this sucks. Well, it used to be even lower than that. Um, but uh, but I, I dialed that back a lot. Um, and I think there's two reasons for that. One is that uh, in hanging out in the crypto space, there's sort of this unspoken implicit norm against politics. Yeah. Uh, so I have like a couple of crypto guys that I really like following me on Twitter. And if I started tweeting about politics, I'd lose them. And hmm. uh, you know, it's kind of fun that Nick Sabo and Zuko and Naval like listen to what I have to say. And, uh, and like, do I want to lose that um, to like gain some audience of probably lower quality people? Um, if I started tweeting about politics. So like the Twitter crypto space is kind of like, has this like social norm that's like driving me away from politics. Interesting. And the other thing, and the other thing was uh, in 2013, like was sort of, I feel like a, a watershed moment for uh, sort of this, uh, the social justice mob um, where like Brand Brandon Knight got fired in 2013. And um, I was writing some sort of, uh immigration skeptic post on my blog and a friend of mine emailed me and he's like are you sure you want to be writing that um and i thought hmm no i'm, I'm not sure that i want to be writing that and uh so i i sort of dialed back some political things that then and then uh i started just started recently sort of like uh dipping my toe back in the water like i've i've interacted with enough social justice activists in person that i think i know the lingo I think I can swim with the alligators and not get eaten. Um, and I think it's important for people to um, like I have a big, my biggest criticism of, of the left is that they don't understand their opponents and there's sort of a understanding. Um, so uh, I remember reading a Sam Altman piece where he was defending his decision not to kick Peter Thiel off the advisory board of my combinator, I think. And uh, he was saying, I don't understand why anyone could ever vote for Trump, but we need to be kind to Trump voters. And I'm like, you know, you're a smart guy, Sam. Like, are you, sh 
you can't understand why anybody could vote for Trump. I mean, they're writing, they're writing about it on the internet and they're speaking about it. Um, so my biggest criticism of the left is like this, this sort of purposeful ignorance. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, but there's not like that many people putting out like a good case for, for heterodox ideas like Jordan Peterson's doing it. Um, but not, not that many other people are. And, and I think there is a duty, uh, for people that think differently to actually put their ideas out there. Like even if there's consequences, even if it's dangerous. Um, yeah, so definitely. I think that's, that's well put. I mean, one thing I would add to that or one additional layer that I see is I think that, you know, we could sooner than later find ourselves in a really serious problem where all of this political polarization is really sort of moving towards like civil war <laughs> level proportions. And my view is that like, we're not quite there yet. And so if we are to make sure that we don't get there, what is really required of everyone is to just just say what you think, honestly, say what you feel, honestly, if nothing else to the people around you, or to whatever larger audience you, you know, have the, you know, comfort to uh, go to, uh, and the resources to muster, if everyone just kind of like says the truth of what they think and feel, you, what you'll actually find is this kind of like multi-dimensional splintering, which I think is also kind of ongoing, right? Like you see traces of that happening right now too. And so to me, it's like, there's a race going on right now between the, the polarization civil war vector, and then the multi-dimensional fraction fractioning or fracturing that's going on right now. And I think like, this is just an additional way of seeing what you were just describing. Like, I, I also think it's, it's a real ethical responsibility for everyone to throw their weight behind the, if you have to choose the, the multi-dimensional fracturing over the, the massifying, uh, polarization. Yeah, there, there's sort of um, a war for public space going on, mm -hmm. and um, and and there's there's two ways that can go. Uh, one is we we all agree on some sort of meta ethic that allows each different group of ethical people to like have their own space. Like, like liberalism is sort of a meta ethic, right? Like it says, um, like Scott Alexander's Archipelago is, is this vision of. Um, which I think knows like lots of libertarian thinkers have this utopia, which is basically it's really easy to set up your own society and exits really easy. Um, but other people can't interfere in your society. Um, so it's like this splintering sort of a vision um, of it's this vision of human heterogeneity. Um, and uh, like the real utopia is a meta utopia. Um, and uh, on the other hand, um, it's possible to just try to dominate the public space if you think you can get away with it, uh, if you have enough people behind you. Um, and, uh, and, and really, that, that, that battleground today is in Silicon Valley. Um, it's, it's really a technological thing that's being waged and, and a social thing. Um, so Right. So I, you, I, got to, you got to the Bay Area around 2010, and you were describing that there were kind of early early appearances of the kind of culture war that we're now, you know, I think very clearly immersed in taking place from on your radar as early as like 2013. I think you referred to before. Is that I right? I think that was, I think it was earlier than that, that you could see glimmers of it. Sure. But it was really, that was like the, that was a really high, um, high profile scalp that, that the left took in 2013. They're saying like, this is, uh, you know, um, Silicon Valley is not a multicultural space. It is a left space. Uh, that was kind of the message um, that 
was sent by that. And I, and I think that's like overstating it a little bit. Like, you know, Brendan Eich was, was, uh, he was a C-level executive at a progressive company. Um, so, uh, like there's plenty of rank and file Republicans, probably like, I don't know, probably like 10% of the Valley is Republican or something like that. Um, or maybe, maybe a little less, but, but it's not, it's not 1%. Um, and, and most people get along. Um, but, but that, that was just a, it, it kind of, you could feel that something was going on in 2013. Right. Okay. And so in your experience there, um, how, how has it evolved from what you've been able to see? Hmm. Well, you know, uh, I actually stopped working at a big company in 2015 and I haven't been back to like a big company kind of environment. Um, what was the big company you worked for again? Wasn't that big. Uh, I was working at Coursera. Oh, that's pretty big. I mean, everyone would have heard of everyone will have heard of that, so that's pretty big, I'd say. It is two hundred people. Um, yeah, I don't know that it's. You, you know, I don't want to overstate things. Like, I don't have that much vision into what's going on. Like, I see the same news art news stories you guys see. Like the James yeah. Demore firing was kind of big on the radar in twenty seventeen. Was that twenty sixteen? Maybe. How long has it been for, for, since? I forget. Uh, two thousand sixteen or seventeen. Not that long ago. James got canned. Um, but that uh, so one topic I want to talk with you about is I feel like I've been drifting towards the center or towards leftward, certainly from where I started over the last uh, few years. Um, okay, that's interesting. I do I do want to talk about that. Um, so you but, said when you moved into Silicon Valley, you were uh, quite a kind of standard libertarian. Yeah. And then I think there was, um, there was both push and pull that kind of made me drift right. And the push is, uh, I really care about epistemic freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, like I grew up in a religious cult where uh, information was carefully restricted and the way that they wanted to build, um, sort of support for their religious platform was just keep keeping you from, from viewing uh, material from any other re religion or any criticisms of the religion. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like my foundational trauma. Like as my childhood trauma um, that like drives my life. Uh, when I read Ayn Rand in college and she had this story about like fleeing communist Russia, I'm like, Oh, she's one of me. Like, you know, um, like the uh -huh. communist dissidents, they, they were like, like that really spoke to me. And, um, and I hate like any, anybody that's telling me I can't think something, can't say something, can't discuss something like it's, it's really, it makes me feel like that helpless child again. Right. And, so I wasn't um, sure if you wanted to talk about this, but since you brought it up, uh, we shouldn't just pass over it so quickly. It's a pretty profound thing. Do you want to just give us the TLDR on the, your, your cult experience? Well, I mean, I just grew up in Jehovah's Witnesses, so right. um, they're, they're not allowed to have friends outside the faith, uh, do anything that would expose them to children outside the faith unnecessarily. So we wouldn't um, weren't allowed to play sports or do after school activities or have friends that that weren't Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they they strongly advise against going to college uh, because that's just hanging out with lots of non Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, <laughs> and, and they're not allowed to re read re religious material uh, from other faiths. And um, right, they're not really allowed to question. Uh, every question has an official answer from the central organization. And, um, that's, that's your answer. Right. And so then you came across libertarianism and you were like, this is awesome. Natural fit, right? Yeah. 
so you escaped the cult, moved to libertarianism. And when you moved into Silicon Valley, you kind of come in with this libertarian perspective. And then you said you initially moved to, further to the right. And what was that all yeah. about? I, I think, man, the uh, the left, there's a push, which is like just seeing the left sort of um, like speak power to truth, like, you know, use social shaming, ostracism um, to to get their way. It's like, we're not going to engage with your arguments. We're just going to make you lose your job. Um, and every time I, I saw that, or if I feel in fear that, like, I just hate that, hate it. Like, there's nothing I hate more. Um, yeah. And so I probably got pushed, you know, further anti-left than, than I should be. Like, um, okay. like, and like now I'm, I'm in a process of like self-criticism and self-reflection and saying like, what's good about the left? Um, and I do want to get to that because uh, I have a, a, something I've been thinking about. I haven't said it out loud. Something I've been about that I think interesting about what's pulling me back towards the center. Um, but that's the push. So, so, that so go for it then. Go for it now. So tell us what what made you move well, back to the left then, or what's the main point that's on your mind? Well, there's like four influences I think that are driving me further to the center. Okay, um, fascinating. One is uh, you're you're one of them. Oh wow, Justin <laughs> Murphy is, is one of them. Oh, you're uh, too kind. Nick Land is one of them. Huh, pushing you to the left. Um, Not many people would say that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, he's a he's a fantastic left wing thinker. Um, Donald Trump and Jordan Peterson. <laughs> They've all pushed you to the left. I, I yeah. think I might be able to see where you're going, but I, I want to, I'm very curious to, to break it down for us. Um, and I, in addition to all those things, there's just the experience of, you know, I socialize with left-wing people all day, every day. Everything I do is, is with left-wing people. If someone's politically active, I'm in Berkeley, California. Um, it is with left-wing people. So I've learned the lingo. I've been interacting with them. But um, first of all, uh, like my biggest problem with the left is epistemic closure. Uh, and, and you don't have that. Like you've read Moldbug, you, you've read Nick Land, you talk about it. Um, you, uh, you have, uh, you know, I, when I was reading your, your writing initially, I'm not just like, this is an open-minded leftist. <laughs> like I never, you, you can't make me left by threatening me. Right. And and people like me, like I guess libertarian-ish people that are now in this post-libertarian landscape where we have all these ideologies sort of bubbling up, like this this uh, this um, uh, Cambrian explosion uh, going on. Like you can't get us on your side by threatening us. Um, can't work. But but you you were you you were an open-minded leftist and um, thank you, like self-described communist. Um, and that was curious to me and and. Uh, and it made me think like I could engage with your writing uh, without it, it being aggressive towards me. Um, and then you brought in a lot of ideas from Nick Land. Nick Land is, I think, really, once you understand accelerationism, he really flips the left-right axis on just, it's entirely orthogonal. Um, so as a, as a libertarian, I grew up like extremely pro-capitalist, like, like 100% pro-capitalist. I would make fun of environmentalists. I would... Uh, really, um, like, like I was obnoxious, okay, just obnoxiously pro-capitalist. I'm like, all, all um, prosperity depends on capitalism, and if you don't agree with that, you're stupid. Uh, and then Nick Land has this has this conceptual framework where, like, capitalism is actually like this process that's made of humans but not run by humans, and it doesn't really care about you. It doesn't not care about you, 
but it doesn't really care about you. And just the description that he had, it just rang true. Um, it really seemed like human value and capitalism are orthogonal. Um, they're, they're not either correlated or anti-correlated significantly. Maybe they, you know, maybe they're somewhat correlated, but in the future they could be really anti-correlated. Um, and uh, so, so, so that opens me up to like critiques of capitalism and, and the idea that like humans left in perfect freedom might drift into um, attractor states that are really uh, distasteful to the kind of values I believe in. Mm. Um, so, I mean, isn't Nick Land like a perfect left blue pill for libertarians? So I want to pause on that and then you tell me more about your other uh, factors pushing your your perspective. Because I, I think what you said is very fascinating. You, you do not hear many people today saying that the current version of Nick Land is pushing them leftward. But I've always really thought that there is a strange kind of four-dimensional chess going on in his larger project. Because, you know, as I talk to him about, he starts off in a, a pretty, you know, explicitly or pretty clearly, not so much explicitly, but at least clearly kind of left-wing uh, perspective in, in his early writings. And then he, you know, in his recent shift to... He's 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 become like an almost over the top um, caricature of right wing evil. You know, it's like he plays up kind of a certain a certain performance of just right wing evil. And I've always kind of saw in that something a little bit deeper and and trickier and uh, with a nonlinear kind of counterintuitive political logic to it. I'm not saying that, you know, it's like a it's just. Uh, fake performance art. He's actually an undercover leftist trying to uh, shift the world towards leftism through a kind of over-the-top uh, evil representation of the right. But I think I've always wondered if there's a little bit of that kind of logic to, to what he's doing in the sense that the way that I see it is sort of like um, if you are really opposed to capitalism, what better way to make the world see what's horrible about capitalism than to embody a kind of representative or defender of capitalism in the kind of most extreme, um, irritating, offensive, provocative, evil guys you possibly can. So it's like, you know, his whole kind of uh, playing up the coldness and brutality, kind of building a whole aesthetics of brutality, really, um, that is aligned with the acceleration of techno capital, you can kind of see it as this kind of like deep play that should actually be making people more and more uncomfortable with with capitalism. And in, in that way, it could have a weirdly kind of left wing implication in terms of its effects on how people think about capitalism. And it sounds like you're kind of testifying to be an example of that, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I don't know very many people that read Nick and are like, yes, I agree with this guy. <laughs> like something deeply unattractive about like um his 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 stance that um humans if humans can be replaced they ought to be replaced if human value can be eliminated it ought to be eliminated like he's backing whatever horse is most powerful and and that's it like like techno capital deserves to escape us and and to to consume us um if it can um that's that's sort of his position right I, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's complicated, but I, I think that's a perfectly uh, reasonable takeaway. Sure. But but I think um, I, I don't quite understand Nick Land that well. I haven't I don't have a deep philosophical background. I'm not as smart as you, Justin. Um, I'm sure that you are. No, 
Uh, but but I do think he kind of like takes the political spectrum and puts it on LSD. Like it just it's I don't quite it, it it's not um it, it's not the same after after you get familiar with with his thoughts. Right. Like right. Um, suddenly, right. anti capitalism is the conservative position. That's right. Um, like anti capitalism right. becomes right wing, and and pro capitalism is this wildly progressive uh or it's the the change driven driven perspective um like if you so like it's like whoa that 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 is the inversion of the the spectrum yeah that's ex that's exactly right and i think that's he's really helped me also kind of refine my understanding of certain things in the world such as he's really helped me see how truly and deeply kind of like progressive moralistic protest against capitalism is absolutely it's like a capitalist firm basically it, it's it's people seeking um to exploit other people for their own profit basically like all all of contempt like traditional um moralistic progressive protest that in entire tradition arguably uh including marx is it's basically a kind of sublimated form of of cultural capitalism it, it's 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 people thinking strategically and instrumentally about how they can exploit public symbols and push people's buttons to get the um rewards that they want to get for themselves at the expense of other people i i i thoroughly see all of modern protest activity as as essentially this kind of even more uh insidious uh, per, uh capitalism essentially um that's that's essentially doing that and you know, I find I find like an honest and and straightforward kind of radical right winger to be um, far more. Um, I actually find a, 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 an honest radical right winger. I find way less uh, ethically problematic than the kind of deep symbolic treachery that modern leftism is in its relationship to, to capitalism. Are you thinking or did we break up? Uh, I, I I'm thinking um, I'm actually not thinking. I'm just sitting here in silence. No, that's cool. Um, <laughs> I, have, I, I had no I, response I, to that. It's good. I appreciate people who are comfortable with long pauses. I was just making sure the computer didn't break down. <laughs> I can do a good job simulating a, a, a crashed computer. So I, I, would you want to carry on with your uh, the, other, the other factors? Because they're interesting. Sure. Um, Jordan Peterson's an interesting one. Um, Again, not someone because, many people would think of as pushing anyone to the left. Well, I had this feeling maybe maybe 2016, maybe 2015, that like cultural institutions had just been captured by this narrow-minded sort of strident leftist ideology. And like the only solution was to replace them, work around them, destroy them. Like I was very opposed to like sort of mainstream cultural institutions. Like universities, I felt like were um we're gradually becoming dominated by left-wing thought and going unchallenged um and, and and i would read people on the internet that would i think it was possible to challenge these positions but it didn't seem like within the institutions like they were being challenged at least not successfully you had like the christakis being persecuted at yale and um the weinstein guy and and you had charles murray getting mobbed and you had you had all this stuff going on and i'm like okay this this institution that has been the the source of wisdom and knowledge being passed down um and, and and that has trained our elite for several hundred years um i mean it's trained our 
the first uh, Western University was like founded in like 1100, right? I think Oxford's like 1100, mm-hmm. um, and it was primarily trained clergy. Um, so you have this long storied institution that just looks corrupt, and, and it's sad. But maybe we just need to move on. And I was probably the most radical person working at Coursera. Like I worked there because like I wanted to destroy this intermediate and then destroy the university. Um, and but then Jordan Peterson comes around and he speaks his mind and people try to kill his career, but they don't kill him. Um, like he, he's, he's critiquing the, the left wing project from within the institution and he's not destroyed. And, um, and that made me think, uh, maybe I don't need to be as afraid as I, I was. And like, and, and there's just, there is space and Jonathan Heights, a, a, another one, he's kind of critiquing from more of a moderate position, but, um, but he's also calling for uh, people who understand right-wing arguments. I wouldn't call myself right-wing per se, but I'm like, I think the biggest difference I would notice between myself and people on the left is that I understand right-wing arguments. Um, but I think there is a call for people that understand right-wing arguments that if they're any good to go and be part of the institutions, like go, go be a psychology professor, go be a social psychologist. Um, right. So you're kind of saying that the rise of Jordan Peterson made you feel like you don't have to be a kind of hardcore radical right winger to stave off the problems of what's happening. That actually well, he kind I, of incre- he kind of increased your confidence in the possibility that mainstream institutions uh, could be saved, and therefore you didn't have to be as as polarized or radical on the right as you might have been otherwise. Yeah, and and I don't I don't want to call myself. I want to make sure that the label "radical right winger" doesn't get applied to me out there. Um, <laughs> okay, did uh, I say that? I, I, uh, well, yeah, um, but it's just kind of I'm just minding my optics. Um, no, I think I said it but, as a counterfactual. Like I said, Jordan Peterson yeah. was one of the factors that stopped you from possibly becoming uh, a more kind of radical right winger. Is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah, I, that's, that's fair to say. Uh, I think. Um, it's just this idea that like I, I believe that the right thing to do is engagement. Um, and I think he's doing the right thing. Um, and he's been treated unfairly in a lot of cases, but he's also been, he's also like a cultural icon now. Um, oh yeah. Like, like he's surviving and I think he's having a big influence. Oh yeah. Way um, more than survive. I think you're absolutely right on that. He's way more than surviving. He's like way better off and more powerful and more effective in everything in, in every possible way than he was before the conflict started yeah so 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 i think he he's a voice just saying that um like he's showing by example that the institutions are not completely corrupt Hmm. yeah that's interesting that's interesting so okay so that that makes sense to me do you want to now explain that what other people will also find puzzling which is that donald trump pushed you to the left yeah i think um i think he he's i think he has stretched the overton window Mm mm-hmm um, and, and I think you, you hear more heterodoxy maybe, uh, coming out in sort of, um, less ideological media. I would than agree. You did yeah. Three years ago. Um, like maybe the high watermark of, uh, sort of constrained, um, political thinking. Maybe, maybe we're, we're, the dam is broken and, uh, or the, the snow is melting and, uh, like uh, a more liberal ideological conversation can be had in public now. Um, okay. and, I, and I think you know, like Donald Trump himself 
um, I, I think he 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 pushed the Overton window wider. Um, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would I would maybe chime in with a thought here, which is that in the way that I've seen things play out, it looks to me like Trump definitely has opened up the Overton window in the larger public culture as a whole. But I think quite interestingly and very revealingly, Trump has not opened up the Overton window in establishment outlets, Mm. at least not yet, because I think you've actually seen active doubling down on SJWism after Trump. I think there have been some really telling instances of this. Like I'm, you know, I pay attention to this stuff very closely right now, especially because I am actually writing a book about this uh, as we speak. But if you look at, for instance, The Atlantic, when they tried to hire Kevin Williamson, did you follow that episode? Yeah, I did. So, you know, Kevin Williamson, conservative columnist, um, anti-abortion, you know, this sort of this sort of guy. They The Atlantic made it they they wanted to hire him. And some people at The Atlantic, um, I guess some sort of majority uh, took the initiative to decide to hire Kevin Williamson. And I think people rightly interpreted it as a kind of active effort among, you know, establishment, you know, cultural elites to, hey, we have to open up a little bit more to the to right wing people. Um, because that's the only way to prevent catastrophes such as Trump is, you know, uh, that's how I interpret it. I think, and I think that's a lot of how people interpret it. I think even they might've said something to this effect about how they wanted to actively kind of like welcome on more, you know, intelligent conservatives a little bit more actively than they might have. Um, at least that's how I read it. And then due to popular protest, they were forced to back down and not hire Kevin Williamson. And they basically just caved to you know, to, to consumer demand, which makes sense. They're a business, right? Like they have to worry about what their audience, their paying audience is going to accept and not accept. So that, so I thought that that was one episode that was very revealing. And it kind of showed to me, like, even if cultural leftist elites kind of see the problem and they want to, um, kind of be better about it and let in intelligent conservative voices, they're going to be not allowed to do that by the nature of their, their audience, their, you know, their consumer, their consumer base. And then not allowed. Yeah. Well, not a lot. I mean, to the deg- they are disciplined by the market, right? By their market, right? So I see the I see this as a kind of it's as not kind like of their big... traffic numbers crashed after they hired Kevin Williamson. It's they got a few mean tweets. Well, that's a good question, Jacob. And if you're so you can have reasonable debates about this, like the business aspect. Like if you're right, then there will be arbitrage opportunities, right? So there there mm-hmm. will be emerging kind of establishment leftist institutions that do have way more uh, openness to conservatives. And those, if you're right, then those should rise eventually. And, and the Atlantic will go by, go, go by the wayside. But who's the, who's the, who's the editor at the Atlantic? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I forgot his name, but um, another possibility is that you are wrong. And that actually the current kind of cultural elite uh, institutions and outlets are, make are actually they have their finger on the pulse correctly and if they tried to if the atlantic tried to hire kevin williamson it actually would not be sustainable given who their audience is in the culture wars and so anyway i took that very inch i i took that as very revealing and then i found it especially revealing when you had the case of sarah Zhang at the new york times right because it's kind of a a very similar episode in terms of a a controversial hire uh, at a a mainstream elite uh outlet and the everything went in the absolute opposite direction, right? There was massive protest about the outrageous things that she's written and the offensive things that she's said. And the New York Times doubled down and said, no, you know, we 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 can tolerate this. We accept her. So those two episodes back to back made me were strongly in, 
kind of strongly influenced my model of the world, to be honest, because that said to me, okay, the mainstream elite cultural institutions are kind of structurally uh, prohibited from averting the the course that they're on. And um, I interpret that to mean that they're kind of on a on a death spiral that they can't even get themselves out of. But maybe you see it differently. No, I, th I think um, I think that I probably need to 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 make my model a little bit more um, sophisticated here, which is uh, something like maybe the, the the thing that comes to mind is maybe the mainstream institutions with the the big names like New York Times and Atlantic are like pop music, and they're becoming more and more uh, uh, homogenized, mm -hmm. and there there's less variety in pop music today than there was fifty years ago or forty years ago, um, and. Uh, but maybe the market is opening up more for independent acts. Right. Well, that's where I think the Overton window is opening up. It's in the larger culture. It's in the wild explosion of the long tail, really. It's all of the independent mm -hmm. creative people making stuff on the internet. I mean, that is definitely where, where things have, op have opened up. But to me, that's on a vector away from the, the mainstream institutions course correcting. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're, you're probably right. So the, the thing that I've noticed that, that is really, um, I, I think, controlling these mainstream institutions is that like very neutral corporations that advertise, that pay the advertising dollars, like seem to be aligning left, hmm. like, or, or seem to be willing to cave to a left-wing mob, but not a right-wing mob. Hmm. Um, so, so if a bunch of right-wingers get angry about the New York Times hiring Sarah Zhang, like there's they're probably not going to, they're not going to lose any advertisers, but right. Um, like the Atlantic might've been worried about advertisers. And right. We see, we see, we see uh, advertisers putting pressures on media companies about um, like right wing deviation or politically incorrect statements from people that write for them. Like, like those are, that's, that's when, that's when you get in trouble. Like the whole uh, adpocalypse on YouTube was part of that. Um, so, so, so that, that might be the, like, the, there is this like elite culture that, uh, seems to connect, uh, um, well, Moldbug calls it the cathedral, right? Like this idea, that there's a cultural, uh, insularity among, uh, people in media and high up in government and, uh, education and higher education. Um, and the thing that might be new is that, uh, it's bleeding out into previously kind of neutral, uh, corporate world. like. MasterCard or Bank of America or like I think was it Bank of America canceling a, uh, bank accounts of like gun manufacturers? Okay, um, I, don't, I don't know. There was some bank that was uh, like saying like, oh, if you make guns, you you can't bank here anymore um, after one of the school shootings. And so like you see like very previously neutral institutions taking sides, and that's that's part of the um, the the spike in the in the culture wars. And um, and it re remains seen how long uh, these these platforms that are allowing the long tail to activate, like your show on YouTube, um, like how uh, how long like they will be willing to distribute that long tail um, under pressure from advertisers. Um, right, right. Do you think it has something to do with like who is the market for kind of like highbrow institutional culture? Like, because I, I think that that's kind of my read is that the advertisers care more about violations of left wing rules because the people who read those things and and pay for those services tend to be 
kind of institutionalized, respectable people. I think it's like the Whole Foods model going uh, across the whole economy. Like people shop at Whole Foods um, to feel good about themselves. Mm. Uh, like they get ethically sourced meat and ethically and organic produce. And um, like not only do you get food, but you get to like be absolved of some sins and like earn virtue. Um, so you think and, there's and, something about leftism that is kind of like a... Um, it's kind of like a natural social bias towards that, which kind of like may, helps people feel good about themselves. Is that kind of like your model? Um, I, I don't know that I want to go so far as saying that's my model. I'm coming up with this on the fly. This is improv, Justin. No, um, I know. I'm just saying your model at this point in time in your mind. Um, it's something like, um, well, I, th I think the thing that, that annoys me is, is uh, maybe I just like the, maybe it's just like when, when very political, like adversarial kinds of, of um, issues become the way that corporations allow you to signal your, um, your virtue. Um, it's like, it, it, it has a, it's, it's, it becomes a zero sum game where it feels to me like Whole Foods is not a zero sum game. Um, like nobody's being hurt by the fact that you feel better about yourself for buying, buying organic. Um, but uh, if, if a corporation is like aligning themselves like against gun rights, uh, now you they are allowing you to pick a side in the culture war because they they think that that side is more motivated or more elite or right. I, I don't, I'm not sure or maybe maybe they just isn't I don't I think a lot of this um, is not um, is not a reflection of like calculated uh, uh, um, benefit. Yeah, it's just I agree. Uh, the CEO shares the culture of, uh, of of the left. Like they're educated. They they um they went to school school lot to hang out with other people who are educated right um, right right I, I i tend to i tend towards those models also where it's like mostly people are following very simple local rules you know like the people most people are following simple heuristics uh there's very rarely ever kind of like grand strategic calculations about these sorts of things uh so i i, I incline towards that view also do you we should talk also a little about because you know you know i told you that this will be a relatively short one today because i got to run to training but um in the, we do still have a good chunk of time. We have about 15 minutes before I have to run. I think we should try to get to some discussion about religion because uh, something oh, I yeah. think you, you and I both have That's in common great. is that we've both um, in recent years, I think, become uh, far more interested in in religion. So maybe could you tell us in your own words how, how that's looked for you? Yeah. Um, how are we doing, by the way? Do you think this is a decent live stream? Oh, yeah. It's great. It's fine. All I right, mean, cool. I, you know, me, like my whole, my whole shtick is I don't do things for instrumental purposes so much as, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I do things that I want to do. And if it becomes like consumable for other people later, it's quite beside the point. It's good if that happens. And if it doesn't, it's quite beside the point. So you and I are just talking and, uh, and I'm enjoying it. So it's good as far as I can tell. Good. I have like some anxiety around being probably like your least well-known live stream guest. No, but that's what I'm into, man. That this, this is what I'm into. Like, I, I I don't think the whole magic and beauty of this long tail is that you can just do what you want and you don't have to make everything a calculation about like, oh, I have to have the right people or influential people only. Like, no, I'm, I'm trying to, I do this stuff because I'm interested in talking with the people I'm interested in. And I think that when people take the wager to just live their life that way, um, they get like amazing things happen uh through like weird accidents and 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 it ends up working out better that way 
Um, I think people are like suffocating themselves even in these types of calculations about like, you know, strategic uh, considerations around like who they should talk to and when, like my whole thing is I'm trying to um, blow all of that up in, in one grand gesture with my life. <laughs> you're, you're the Kanye West of, of uh, political science. Um, not yet, but that, that would be a, uh, I would be very proud of that designation if I were one day to earn that. Well, you know, he just, uh, is the, is the poster child for like authenticity nowadays. Um, I think he's pretty, uh, I think he's pretty high level woke. What do you think? Oh, I think he's based. Based, <laughs> based, yeah. Based on red pilled or just based? Uh, just based. Well, I think there's like this based to woke axis. Like, like you could redraw the political quadrant of like based to woke and then like, um, maybe like, uh, lulls to try hard or something. Um, <laughs> that, and that good. could be, like, that could be like your four quadrants that's of good. like, you know, I, I you would know, like based to... and try hard based in lulls, uh, woke and lulls, woke and try hard. That's intriguing. I would like to see someone try to formalize that. You would, you would be probably like between based and woke, like right on that, that, that axis. And then somewhere like mildly into the lulls uh, side of the thing. And what's the opposite of lulls? Did you say try hard? Okay. Interesting. Well, like, well, We'll leave that to yeah. an enterprising person in the audience to formalize that. I think it's a promising lead. But in the in the ten minutes while I still have you, let's let's try to talk about tell, tell yeah. us about your um, attitudes towards religion because this is something you and I have chatted about private privately. So go for it. Yeah, um, I, I talked about my religious upbringing, mm -hmm. um, which uh, was a push into extreme atheism, uh, kind of in my young adult years. Um, but I, I guess I have a bit of a mystical side. Like I just, I have a lot of religious feeling. Um, like I have very strong emotions. Um, I'm very easily taken away by beauty. Um, and uh, I'm capable of, of feeling great love for people and things. Um, and uh, when I started encountering more mainstream Christianity in college and, and afterwards, like I, it, it wasn't as, as dumb and close-minded as Jehovah's Witnesses was. Um, like it was just far better than I thought it would be. Um, but so, so there's been this very slow process, uh, over the next, I mean, I'm old, I'm 35. So I graduated from college when I was 22, 13 years. Um, I've explored a lot of Buddhism. I may or may not have taken some psychedelics during that time. Um, and I've been like going to church on Christmas and Easter. Um, and, and those are sort of the three main religious, uh, experiences that I may or may not have pursued. And, um, and I think probably Jordan Peterson like gave me, well, my mind was already prepared by being more phenomenologically focused. Hmm. Like at some point, maybe five, four or five years ago, like I stopped seeing myself as a collection of atoms and more as like the thing that experiences reality. Um, so, so my, my, my view of like what it means to be human has changed from the objective to the subjective, um, which really pisses people off. Like most of my friends are, <laughs> were scientific materialists and objectivists. I mean, uh, rationalists, not objectivists. There's no objectivists that are worth anything um, being friends with, but uh, plenty of rationalists that are worth being friends with. Um, and, uh, but, but I started just like viewing the world through a more subjective lens. And when you view the world subjectively, like there's magic, like, you can you can change the very fundamental um, nature of reality through how you relate to people and what emotions you bring 
to your experience of reality. Like um, if you approach the, the world with reverence and wonder, like that's a very different feeling than approaching the world through like a, how can I be most productive kind of mind frame. Mm. And, um, and so, so, so with that sort of preparation, um, Jordan Peterson's biblical lectures are sort of a phenomenological psychological interpretation of the book of Genesis. Um, they're wonderful. Have you, have you listened to them? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Not everybody. I mean, it's 36 hours worth of content, so not everybody's done it, but, but I, I listened to the first one. I'm like, I have to, I mean, I couldn't stop myself from listening to the rest. Um, yeah, they're definitely worth yeah. listening to if you're at all interested in Christianity. I think especially for, you know, this is why people love to hate on Jordan Peterson, but there's a reason why he's blown up. And I think it's like people like you and I are, you know, I don't consider myself a fanboy because, you know, I'm trying to constitute myself as a kind of, um, you know, uh, potential like peer of, you know, the, the people I admire, you know what I mean? So, um, I don't, I don't fanboy or anything like that. I think there's lots to critique, you know, for sure. But obviously as a young man, uh, kind of like floating in a generally kind of postmodern, like leftist milieu for most of my young adult life, um, you know, Jordan Peterson is obviously just the current master of articulating why that stuff is like psychologically uh, quite harmful for many people mm-hmm. and what like another way of thinking about life uh, looks like, uh, which is essentially a, a Christian perspective. And so it's precisely people like you and me that, um, you know, will listen to all 36 hours of those lectures and be like, huh, yeah, I get what you're saying. Thanks for that. <laughs> There's um so broadly like i'm not a philosophical expert but but there's like this trend where um like modernism tried to build something right and modernism set up all these systems of of running society and culture uh it was pretty monolithic and then postmodernism was about deconstructing that um showing that the assumptions that held that together were assumptions and could be different it was sort of like the uh, non-euclidean geometry revolution in geometry um it was, it was and um and it was it was it was a it was a a movement of fluidity and liberation and um and, and possibility and, and and that's like sort of the culture you see um, in a big city like I live in um, it's like this culture of like like freeing oneself from social constraint um, like freeing myself from traditional right. ideas about relationship and gender and um, and everything anything that you can think of like it's like seeking absolute freedom and i think the level beyond postmodernism which um jordan peterson is pointing to is that like sometimes you have a better experience like if you can bind yourself if you can choose structure definitely like like the the like the revolution of of freeing your of being able to critique inherited institutions like was important is important uh, but that's not all there is um and being able to bind yourself even to, to new institutions or even to old institutions uh, to make a choice um, to be a Christian or to to be married to someone and treat that as something larger than yourself that's worth sticking to, like these, maybe they lead you to higher optimum than if you can't do that, if you only can de- deconstruct. Uh, so, so that's like the level that I think he's he's pointing to. And I don't know that anybody is completely articulating it yet. Uh, David Chapman is my favorite internet writer. I think he's also pointing to something like that. Um, the integral movement is trying to point to something like that. Um, I think everybody, like there's like this, this groundswell of people 
yeah. sort of reaching for structure. Um, Definitely. I think you're going to see more and more people trying to figure out how to interpret that space and how to construct lives and organizations and communities and cultures in that space. And I think what's going on really is like, I think Jordan Peterson is a brilliant um, kind of example of, of one way to think about that space and to explore it and to occupy that space. But I, you know, he's only one. And I think it's a massive space. I think the reason why Jordan Peterson has risen to such extraordinary fame and influence is just because that space was artificially evacuated, uh, kind of suppressed really for the, for like the past several years, I think. And he just happens to have been the person who kind of had a long running and significant kind of intellectually hefty project uh, that he had been working on for years and years. And he was the first one to, to just almost accidentally um, kind of break into that, to that massive unexplored space that's kind of lacking in our culture. So of course, as he's the first one kind of to break through, he shoots to the top in terms of influence and, and, and reach because it's so evacuated. Um, but now there's going to be more and more people filling out this massive space in all kinds of different, interesting and creative ways that are going to be different depending on different people's temperaments and different shades of opinion and, and inclinations. And so, yeah, to me, that's like a huge bull market and, and not in a kind of like instrumental sense. I mean, it's like there are spaces of social experience and intellectual reflection that have just been not uh, being occupied. Uh, and and now people are going to be occupying them more and more. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And so I, I just want to I'm mindful of our time and I just want to finish out. Oh, great. Yeah, sure. Bring journey real wraps quick. up, Jacob. Tell people where I currently am. Um, yeah, please. I, 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 I sort of um, randomly, not randomly, but uh, I, I ran by an Orthodox monastery last year. Um, and uh, in, in the abbot there was this really funny guy that uh, used to be a Hare Krishna and a hi- hippie in San Francisco and then became an Orthodox monk. And um, he, uh, he gave me a book and uh, from like the 1930s by this Orthodox monk that, um, that like grew up in Russia in 1890s and like fled the Russian revolution. And, it was interesting, interesting characters. Um, and, and the thing is, like, this book is written from this incredible mystical phenomenological perspective. Um, like, it is the most rich in living Christianity that I've ever encountered. Like, I re- I cry, like, every five pages, like, reading this book. It's so beautiful. Wow. Um, <laughs> cool. And, uh, and, and part of that is because I've really internalized the Christian narrative from, like, just growing up on it for, you know, 18 years. And, um, it might not do the same for everybody, but, uh, there's like, uh, it, it is, and, and I keep on thinking like, like for, for, for this, this writer, uh, Archimandrite Sophroni, um, like exploring his relationship with God, part of the fundamental nature of reality. Like the name of God is, is I am, or I am that I am. And he's like, what is this? I am. Um, and, uh, and it has something to do, um, with the fundamental nature of reality and the bible says that god is love and you know and and, and those two ideas like uh he's sort of like seeking god and and um and having a deeply emotional experience and doing it and it's incredibly mystical and like okay this is weird but really cool i love it and it turns out that's like kind of just mainstream orthodoxy like like orthodoxy is an incredibly mystical and like uh, a religion and it happens to be like the church of the apostles and known for being super conservative and like uh really old and i'm like like who's who's been hiding this from me like all these years so like the last three or four months i've just been really geeking on orthodoxy and really loving it um 
it's that's uh, awesome. it's yeah it's, it's something really cool yeah that's awesome you the name of the book oh i'm sorry is, uh, good. the name of the, that book was his life is mine um it's like it is mind bending um if you have some christian background it i do recommend picking it up i i bought a bunch of the copies though so there's not that many copies left on amazon i'm sorry <laughs> No, it's really interesting. It's something I don't know enough about at all. I haven't read much about it. Uh, you've told me a little bit about it before, but um, you, you definitely are encouraging me to to look more into it. It sounds interesting. Um, what was I going to say? And yeah, I definitely think you're going to see more and more people exploring more and more versions of, yeah, more kind of strict, uh, traditionalist, kind of self-imposed forms of intellectual and social and behavioral structure. So um yeah, that's cool that that's kind of the little niche that you find yourself kind of most drawn to. Is this something that you're exploring? I should say before, also before we before we go in just a minute, um, you should plug your stuff a little bit. You write a blog and you also, do, are you still doing your podcast? Yeah, I'm actually going to drop an episode today. Um, my my podcast is non-political. So I kind of enjoyed the the uh, the opportunity to, to bat around some political ideas with you, Justin, because I, I don't get to talk about them very much. Are you writing um, and talking more about like this orthodoxy kick you're on? Um, I plan to. Cool. I haven't been very good at producing content outside of my podcast lately. So, uh, you know, talking with people in conversation is really um, the thing that I can keep up with, even if I haven't really made space in my life to be in that mindset. Writing is something that I really need to be in the in the mood yeah. for um, it's hard it's always a struggle yeah 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 but um yeah my podcast is active it's uh the uncharted life um so you know our our projects have a little bit of a uh, an echo there in, right. in their name right um other life and uncharted life um that's true and it's most my podcast is about life philosophy and finding people living interesting lives and um interviewing them so the one i'm dropping today is about uh is with two people that work at the suicide hotline in San Francisco, where I also volunteer. Um, and, uh, and we talk about what that's like. Um, and that, that kind of gives you a flavor for the kind of topics that, that I talk about. I've interviewed a friend of mine who's a, a priest or a pastor, um, a friend of mine who raises two children with autism, um, those kind of topics, uh, just trying to find the, the niches of human life that most people don't have a window into. And opening that up um right right well i think that's a beautiful thing and i think you're you have a unique kind of trajectory and you have a unique history and your own politics and philosophical beliefs or convictions or even just inclinations are you well, know a, a unique a unique brew and i really want to build bridges okay. um and and if i if i'm gonna like leave the audience with something it's like i don't know build build a bridge like hmm. um it's uh like there's there's value in a lot of different cultural pockets and yeah i think building bridges between them uh helps build empathy and i think is the that's the connective tissue that'll keep us from killing each other so um that's what that's what i'm trying to do yeah and um i think that's a worthwhile project well that's cool man thanks for thanks for kind of uh summarizing it in that way i appreciate that and you know i would just add to to your own you know modest description of yourself, I would say that, you know, you have uh, a very unique blend of perspectives and convictions and inclinations. And I think people with unique blends of, of viewpoints are the, some of the kind of key actors, I think right now in opening up the culture to be more multidimensional 
And so you see that in terms of building bridges, which is totally fine. And that's a beautiful thing. I actually tend to not see the larger politics in that way. Personally, I tend to see it as, um, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in things like exit and increasing kind of uh, multidimensionality, increasing options, increasing possible possibilities for divergence, um, but productive and, 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 and creative and constructive divergence really. And so, you know, I think like I think- when people... I think when people like you blog and do podcasts, even though, as you said yourself, you know, very modestly, you know, you're not famous. Like I'm not famous either. Uh, We don't have like huge audiences, but if you have things that you believe in that are interesting and that don't map on easily to what other people think or, or believe, you know, it's the work that you do is it's important. And the, and people like you and and people like me, you know, like small scale people who are just have interesting, weird thoughts and want to build them out and want to explore and create new niches. Um, of life, of, of culture, uh, you know, that's, I applaud that tremendously. And I see you at, as an example of that. And yeah, I just want to say that's awesome. And uh, uh, you have nothing but you have nothing but my encouragement and support to for you to carve out your, like, weird blend of orthodox Christianity and leftism and rightism and libertarian tech broism, and uh, also like sensitive, uh, vulnerable, non-toxic masculinity that i think you you also kind of represent i appreciate those things about you bitcoin and love is a is a cool combination um (laughs) yeah yeah so um yeah uh, i hate i hate that i have to run so quick but i do so thanks i I enjoyed this justin i hope we could do something uh a little longer someday yeah definitely definitely we'll just uh as soon as we have some time we'll just do it again all right uh well peace enjoy your day over there in england thanks for joining me jacob and uh, i'll be in touch with you See you, dude.